The 19th century Russian writer Leo Tolstoy is best known for his epic novels, uh, War and Peace and Anna Karenina. But he wrote many short stories, and one of those that he wrote when he was in his 50s, he had lived a while, one of those was entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And that story, just in short, is the, the story of a man named Pakum, who had a gift from his father in the form of farmland, and he received it very gratefully. And as he deliberated on that gift, he thought, how can I take the opportunity to grow what my father has given to me? And so he began to think about how he could save and in fact how he could even sacrifice in order that he would be able to purchase more acreage and to expand what he had. Uh, but it was even then not enough to have expanded upon what his father had given him. Um, he hears about another region of his beloved country and he travels there because he realizes that he can buy more land that he had where he was for less money. And so he sells his property, moves there, takes his family with him and purchases this very large expanse of land. But he does not stop thinking about this idea of expanding what he has. He's very dissatisfied and he hears about another opportunity that is just almost too grand to be true. The king has offered an extraordinary deal that if you will give to the king your money, then you can set out on a journey and if you will stake out at sunrise where you start and then encircle by walking around as much land as you can walk around and come back to that stake by sunset, all of that will be yours. Now you will have given your money, this will be a purchase uh, to the king. And so Pakam said, this is just too good to be true. So he sells all and he imagines himself to be a man who is very wealthy in acreage. The stake is hammered in the ground early at sunrise and he sets off on his journey. In fact, he begins his journey by running. He thinks the more land I can cover, the better. And so he runs as far as he can. By the time that he reaches midday, his, his energy level, of course, is beginning to, to uh, be less. And so he slows down a bit and then realizes, well, he better begin to make a turn to head back toward that stake that he left there at sunrise. But as he begins his journey back toward that stake, he comes next to this beautiful meadow that he thinks this is just too wonderful not to have to be a part of my property and so he begins to run around the edge of the meadow and at the edge of the meadow there is this beautiful forest this wooded area and he thinks to himself surely I'm on my way back to the stake and I can include this in what will be rightfully mine 
Now you can already begin to sense, sense where this story goes because it was pushing his body beyond what his body could stand. And at the end of the day, as he could sense the nearness of that stake in the ground, and as he longed to get there, he realized that he had miscalculated and his body could take no more. And he fell within arm's reach of that stake and died right there. It's not the happiest of stories that Leo Tolstoy tells. But he asked the question again that he started with, how much land does a man need? And then he offers an answer to it. He said, about six feet from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The plot of land upon which the man would be buried. And Tolstoy raises the question, why do we feel so discontent? Now, I don't believe that this was an autobiographical story, but I do wonder by the age at which he wrote this story, if Tolstoy was not just being observational of the world around him, but he was being very introspective. He had been successful beyond imagining. And even in the culture of Russia, he had become a very wealthy man. And surely he was reflecting on the domain that he had made for himself and his family, wondering how far he had come and how far he would go. Now, it may be that you don't ever think about these things, but I suspect at some point in your life, if you have not, you're a very unusual person. <laughs> or if you have yet to think about this, you just have not lived quite long enough to get there. We think about our domains, however small they may be. We think, how can ex I expand the borders of who I am and what I own in order to make life easier? It is only logical that we would think this way, especially in this culture, that we would think that it is admirable to think that way, to expand your border. I, I remember, I think I must have been about eight years old, when my mother gave to me a very nice little wooden box. Now, I have a feeling it was something that she had acquired um, a number of years before and realized that she didn't have use for it. But at my age, when I looked at the box that my mother had given me, I thought, this is absolutely beautiful. And my mother went on to say, if you have any things that you would like to put in the box to keep, you can put those things there. She had, of course, been cleaning out my pockets before putting them into the laundry and had discovered all kinds of things that I had thought were precious. And I began to think, what can I put in this? And I, I 
cleaned out my drawers and tried to find those precious items that would fit into the box. And once I had them in the box, I began to look at the box. I remember this very distinctly because I thought there was one thing more that needed to be added. And I found a large magic marker. And on the outside of that box, I scrolled in big letters, this is mine, do not touch. <laughs> on that fine little wooden box, that indelible marker that changed it forever. I don't even know where that box is now. I have no idea. I wonder if my mother smiled over it or if she grimaced over it. The context of this lone verse, and this is probably the shortest passage of scripture we've ever asked Regina to read in, in worship. The context of this passage of Scripture, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, is that Jesus has been approached by someone in the crowd of those that were listening to him with the question, Teacher, tell my brother, actually the instruction, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And so Jesus responds to him and says, Friend, who set me to be the judge or arbitrator over you, Jesus is not going to get into the mix of that question. But this person that has come feels that they are owed more, obviously, of the family estate than they are getting. It is not explained as to whether this is the uh, prodigal son scenario where the father has given even before his death to his son who goes off and spends all that he has given of his part of the inheritance uh, or if the father in this situation has died and the elder son has received what is his due two-thirds of what the father had while the younger son is thinking more progressively and thinks to himself this is something that should be divided evenly between us we don't know the, the entire context, but we do know that this was a setup for Jesus' statement that we should take very seriously. For his instruction was, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You and I would do well to remember also what comes just after this instruction because it is the parable of the rich fool. Do you remember that one? Where there were more than abundant crops that a farmer had and because of that it occurred to him he had no place to put those crops and so it came to him this wonderful idea. We'll build bigger barns. I'll tear down the barns that I have and build bigger barns in order to store all that I have grown in these fields. It's an interesting thing because on the one hand, we can see Jesus' point. 
that greed is something that will take our lives and do them very little good. But we also are remembering the good planning of that young man, Joseph. You remember who was in Pharaoh's good company and who at his instruction, knowing that famine was coming, instructed that, that the people bring in from their harvests for seven years and prepare for the inevitable when life would become very difficult. And so it's possible to look at what this farmer is doing and think that maybe he was making a very good decision. And in fact, isn't this the kind of thing that we seek to do when we're thinking in proper ways about money? We don't just use up all of the money that is available to us. Now, I say some of us haven't learned that lesson yet. But if you've thought about the resources that have come your way, surely you have come to the idea that it is important to save something for use at a later time. And here this farmer is thinking in that way. In fact, he's thinking to himself, it says in the parable, Jesus says that, that once he gets his barns full, that then he'll be able to relax and that things will be so good that he will be able to eat and drink and be merry. Sounds like a very good retirement, doesn't it? But Jesus says in this parable, before it's over, that God's reaction to that sense of coming to that place of comfort is that he is a fool because this man does not realize that he will die that very evening. And then the question is, who will all this belong to? We don't like to think about that situation, do we? Who will all this belong to? Now, most folk don't need barns. <laughs> and I know very little about farming, but I can tell you this. I know a lot of people who rent storage units. Do you? <laughs> and especially here in Statesboro, I also know a lot of people who have more in their garages than can be imagined. That there is certainly no room for a car there, much less even another bicycle in that place. I know people, and here I'm talking about myself, that have their attics so full of stuff we don't even know what's up in the attic anymore. And closets filled with things that someday, I know, will become the refuse of my life as well. Eventually, you know all of this stuff ends up in a yard sale. I remember that my preaching professor, Fred Craddock, said that he had gone to an estate sale of an aunt, I believe it was, of his that had died. And he said that as he was 
looking through things on the front yard of that cell that he realized that in her death, no one knew exactly what to do with her wedding rings. And so they put them in a little dish for somebody to purchase out on the front lawn of the house. What are the things that are most precious to you? And what will become of those? Sue and I were in an antique store recently. I love to look at other people's junk. This was not a fancy antique store, let me tell you. This was not one of those fine places where you go to look at furniture that's two or three hundred years old. No, 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 no. You don't understand what an antique store is. We were surrounded by vases and by plates and by silverware and by little pieces of furniture, but by pocket knives and by, by uh, pocket watches and everything imaginable, toys and, and things that you could never imagine that somebody might have purchased at some point in the past. And I'm fascinated with all that stuff. Just looking at what we want to own, what some of us want to collect. While I was moving through that store, way up on a top shelf, I saw a sign that somebody must have had in their house at some point. It was on a long piece of board, and it had been pushed out of the way where you could hardly even see it. And I thought, what does that say? And I had to step back a little bit in order to get a visual on it. And then realized that on that piece of board, someone had written, the things that will make you happy are not actually things. And I thought to myself, no wonder they're not displaying this more prominently. <laughs> Because when you enter a store like that, they want to make you believe that what you're looking at is something that you really need. And so, in reflecting on this prophetic truth, that the things that will make us happy are not things, let me ask you a very personal question. How is it with your financial health? How is it that you are thinking about money? Now, some of you immediately are leaping toward the concept of security when I ask that question. How is it with your security financially for the future? But that's not what I'm getting at here. What I'm asking is the question, how do you look at life? Now, I'm not calling you to an austere life. I'm not putting it above God to do that very thing if we really pay attention to his calling within our lives. And some of you might be called to that kind of life. I know of more than one person who is called they truly believe they are called to live in 
abject poverty because God wishes for them to use every resource that comes their way for the good of others. But my question really for us this morning is from a faith perspective, are you in the business of cultivating contentment with where you are and what you have? Are you learning to say, enough is enough? Or are you plagued with what might I gain and how I might gain what is next coming to me? In the Apostle Paul's writings, I find it interesting that the fourth chapter of his letter to the church at Philippi reveals the focus of his life when he says, I've learned to be content with whatever I have, little or plenty. I've learned to live in it all. I've learned to be content with whatever I have, little or plenty. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We often quote the end of that verse without thinking about the significance of the connection to the first of that verse. What we think of it as being when we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we see this as being just one more excuse to reach out and do that which will bring to us something more. But we don't couch that in the language that the Apostle Paul meant it. Do you remember that story of how Jesus came into Jericho one day and how the crowds around him prevented one man in particular from being able to get a view of Jesus. In fact, he suspected this was going to be the case because, as the Scripture says, he was short in stature. It doesn't really explain whether this man was short in stature or whether Jesus was short in stature, which might have been the case as well. But this man, in order to be able to see Jesus, crawled up in a tree and looked at Jesus. More importantly... Jesus looked at him and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to your house today. You may have heard a little song that goes by this. But the significant thing here is that when Jesus came into Zacchaeus' house, he came into his heart as well. Who knows what the conversation was between Jesus and Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus, being a chief tax collector, began to evaluate through the eyes of Christ what had been going on for so long in his life. And before Jesus left, he said to him, I'll give half of what I have to the poor. And if I have defrauded anybody, and that's a joke because he had defrauded people for the entirety of his career. He said, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll give back to them four times what I've taken unlawfully. Can't you imagine that this changed Zacchaeus' lifestyle? It changed his way of thinking about money and about finances. 
John Wesley lived by a rule of life that few could equal. <clears throat> in fact, even in his day, he positioned himself in such a way as to care for others in this early thing called Methodist revival that he was always focusing on how to give away those resources that came to him. At age 83, now this would have been toward the end of the 18th century, but when he was 83 years old, he began to think, how is this going to play out, this thing that is called Methodism? And this is what he wrote in his thoughts upon Methodism. He said, the Methodists in every place grow diligent and frugal. And he meant that not as a compliment diligent and frugal consequently they increase in goods so although the form of religion remains the spirit is swiftly vanishing away what way then I ask again can we take that our money may not sink us to the nethermost hell these are hard words from the founder of this denomination, this church. He goes on to say, there is one way and there is no other under heaven. And then he repeats something that he had been repeating almost his whole life in a sermon that is entitled, The Use of Money. He says, there is one way, if those who will gain all they can and save all they can will likewise give all they can then the more they gain the more they will grow in grace but it's interesting in this writing and reflecting on Methodism he goes on to say it is not too hard to find someone who is interested in gaining all they can. He said, it's quite a bit harder to find someone who will save all they can. Those are rare. He said, it is almost entirely impossible to find someone who will give all they can. He went on to say, I dare say, that you might have a hard time finding 500 Methodists in 50,000. Now, this was before he died when he said this. This was back when he was 83 years old. He was going to die five years later. And his last words to us were to remind us of who we are in our calling. 500 out of 50,000. And you can do the mental math on that. It's 1%. 1% of us really get it. And I raise the question, how can we cultivate contentment in such a way as to truly being the ones that God can use? 
for the caretaking of the world. Wesley also is very well known to have said, and let's put this quote up, do all the good you can, let's say this together, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. May we remember when enough is enough. <laughs>